You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the show that's not afraid to feature the soft rock hits of the 70s as its opening music. episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. This is an internet radio show brought to you by me, Sean Engel, and covering the Greenlander comic books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis, as always, on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Unfortunately, this time around, as it was the last couple issues, Guy doesn't feature too much in the show. In fact, Kyle doesn't either, but he really isn't part of the Green Lantern lore until much later along in the series. But a couple of the characters that we are going to look at this time around are the legendary Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, and his off-again, on-again girlfriend, Carol Ferris. Well, not really Carol Ferris, Star Sapphire. Yes, the purple-suited Samaronian with the large hair, amongst other parts, and broadsword that she's willing to slice through people. We also get a continuation of our dealings with the character of Flicker, the flame-headed, Elizabethan-dressed stereotype who's the antagonist for the series, as well as his boss and a new character of Creon, the brother of Freon, I guess. I don't know. It'll all make sense the synopsis. So I would like to say thank you, everyone, for downloading the show. Um, I don't know if this is impressive or not, because I really don't talk to other podcasters about their numbers, but episodes one and two of the show have surpassed the 100 download mark, which, for me, I think is a pretty good number, specifically because this is such a niche podcast, and I do so very little to promote it. But I'd like to thank all of you for downloading it, and really, well, it's really a sort of validation that people would actually want to listen to me jabber on about this dribble so thank you for doing that i'd also like to thank everyone who's been writing in the past uh, few weeks we've gotten some really good emails and we're going to get to those after the break so let's go ahead and we'll pop in a few promos here give a little love to my podcasting brethren and then we'll be back for the review of green lantern number 22 so stay tuned and we'll see you after the promos
just who the hell are you? He's James T. Kirk. Don't you read history? What did you say your name was? Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? We violate the treaty, Captain. Red alert! All hands, battle station! What are you scratching at? Incorrect. Can we just get down to it, please? Prepare to attack. All hands battle Mondays available the second Monday of every month at two true freaks dot dot com. My name is Steve Lacey, dub podcaster. The randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me, help me, listen, please. Is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20 Minute Long Box. The 20 Minute Long Box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20 Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. The funeral is over. Jonathan Kent is on the mend. So, uh, how's Clark's father? Oh, much, much better. Lois has returned home. Boys, over here! Harry, why? Since when did you start meeting your staff at the airport? How'd you know I was returning on that flight? A good editor checks out his answers, Lois. I got a hot story of once you straight away. I'm parked over here. But just as Metropolis has learned to live without the Man of Steel... I know, there was only one Superman, but Metropolis just hit the jackpot. Because we got four Supermen now, and nobody knows which of them, if any, is the real McCoy. Four beings of incredible power and intellect have laid claim to the Man of Steel's name. The last son of Krypton. I live! The Man of Steel. Ah! 
steel coming through! Nobody move! This is a bust! The Cyborg. Yes, I'm Superman. I'm back. The Boy of Steel. Put me down! Listen, pal, don't ever call me Superboy. Capiche? The reign of the Superman is upon us. And so, from crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast begins its epic coverage of this last act in the epic death and return of Superman saga. Every week, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, along with the best and the brightest in the podcasting community, will cover this event in all of its forms, from the comics to the novelizations to the audio drama and beyond. Superman is back, but is any of them the real Man of Steel? Find out on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, located at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. In the decade of the 1970s and 80s, not even the great city of Metropolis could be spared the ravages of an energy crisis, supercriminal attacks, or disco. The job of protecting the city fell to Superman, whose battle for truth, justice, and the American way made him a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. Charlie Niemeyer in association with the Superman Podcast Network, presents Superman in the Bronze Age. Superman in the Bronze Age is a bi-weekly podcast highlighting the Bronze Age adventures of the Man of Steel in various comic titles. Follow along at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com And welcome back. Like I said before at the opening of the show, we've actually got a few emails for this episode, so let's go ahead and get to reading those. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> And we'll start out with an email from Luke Jacknetti, the host of Earth Destruction Directive, the co-host on Two True Freaks website's podcast, uh, what is it, The Vault of Starlane Monster Horror Tales of Terror. I think I got that right. Plus also the purveyor of L.G. Cohn's Comic Bunker, as well as Being Carter Hall, a Hawkman-centered blog. So if you get a chance, go check out those sites. But Luke writes in with the title, Mr. Anthrax. Please pause for the obligatory Mr. Anthrax and my father yuck 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 joke. Yeah, maybe someday I'll let you know why my pseudonym over the internet is Joe Anthrax. Probably not. Anyway, Luke's email goes on to say, Hey dude, Luke Jacanetti here. I just finished listening to episode 18 of Just One of the Guys. I'm a little behind at the moment. No problem, Luke. Personally, I like the cover to Green Lantern number 18 for the sheer comedy value. 
Now, for those who don't remember, that was the sort of Boris Vallejo ripoff cover that had Guy Gardner standing over a mountain of his enemies with his sword held high and Carrie Limbo at his side. It was a neat cover, but we'll get to that in a second. Luke says, I'm a big sword and sorcery comic fan, so seeing Guy Gardner in such a cliched sword and sorcery pose brought a big grin to my face. Of course, the green background is a little plain, but the poses alone really do it for me. Your, mi- your mileage may vary, though. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a neat concept, but as I think I wrote back to Luke, Kevin McGuire, who did the cover, has done so much better you know, artwork, especially with Guy, so it seemed like it might have been a little rushed. Plus, the blasé sort of green background really didn't do anything for me. Luke continues with, The reveal of Goldface must have been a letdown. <laughs> you and me both, buddy. Uh, pretty much any time Goldface is in a book, it's a disappointment to me. So maybe I'm just more prone. Not sure who else you could plug into that spot without introducing a new character, and then you have the whole, well, who the heck is this guy aspect. I don't know much about Green Lantern's rogues gallery beyond the obvious ones, so I can't think of who else would get put in there. Yes, just be thankful it wasn't the shark. Then he continues on, Guy's conservative brand at the beginning made me smile. I don't know that the ravings of a comic book character influence any of the notable members of the conservative movement, but it is nice to see a conservative getting the spotlight, even if it's in, in the negative light like Guy is portrayed. Yeah, I have to agree. You know, Guy, unfortunately, has been sort of the whipping boy for conservatives in the DC comic books. I know Keith Giffen and Roger Stern have kind of taken the character and made him out to be just a sort of mindless stereotype of what liberals tend to want to portray conservatives as, and unfortunately I don't like that. I do like the fact that Guy does have conservative values and all that, but this isn't a political podcast, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Anyway, uh, Luke continues on, said some extra notes. I for, one is all, I, for one, always like seeing the ads for the various sports cards and comics from the 80s and especially the 90s. For one thing, my brother was very big into sports cards collecting, so I was exposed to a lot of the different series and brands from this era as well. Plus, all of the gimmicks that were part of each set were really very nifty to me, because I now know that when the ad was first printed, the writing was on the wall for the entire sports card market, and it would be doomed shortly afterwards. And, of course, I like seeing all the old athletes whom I grew up watching. Something about that makes me nostalgic when I see those ads. Well, having no sports-related stories from when I was young, it unfortunately doesn't make me nostalgic. Then he goes on, Nick at Night was the first place that I ever saw The Adventures of Superman, believe it or not. That and Saturday Night Live, SCTV, and Dragnet. So classic. I agree. Back in the day, Nick at Night was a great repository for basically shows that kids wouldn't have seen when they were growing up. I mean, nowadays it's probably doing stuff like Cosby Show and uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and stuff like that, but back then, like I said, it was portraying the sitcoms from the 1960s and that, and it was really fun. I also think that the first place I saw Adventures of Superman was on TV on one of the local TV stations on Saturday mornings after cartoons were over. They would, uh, it was about the time that the Superman movie had came out, uh, the Christopher Reeve one, and they started playing those in conjunction just to sort of drum up more enthusiasm about Superman. So, it was fun. 
Luke continues with, I respect you being a Hogan and Piper aficionado, but man, you put the Road Warriors on a box or on a magazine cover, then me and a lot of others are immediately interested. Animal and Hawk could make money no matter where they were, and they were top money makers for years and years. They certainly had a real distinctive look, and their style would be emulated and ripped off for decades. Ah, what a rush. Yeah, Luke's talking about the uh, Road Warriors who were portrayed for the WCW wrestling game uh, a couple of issues back. Again, I'm certain they were a popular duo, and in wrestling, they were probably the people that you did want to go see. Unfortunately, I grew up on, like I said, the sort of Hulk Hogan, or, you know, early to mid-80s thing where you had Hulk against, you know, Andre the Giant and Roddy Roddy Piper and Captain Lou Albano and the goofiness that was all of that. So I think I just kind of dropped out after it, and I, the Road Warriors unfortunately weren't in my wheelhouse at the time. But Luke finishes up with, anyway, dude, keep up the great work on the show and keep them shining. Thanks, Luke. I appreciate it. And we're going to get another letter right now from Luke Jack and Eddie again. And this time he writes in saying, Hey, dude, I just wanted to write in real quick about episode 19. One of the ads you had was for the Sega Genesis game Decap Attack, which you thought might be an original game, which was designed to launch a franchise, but failed. While the game was original, it has a much more interesting origin. The game, which would become Decap Attack, started as a game based on the anime Magical Hat. The anime was never imported to the U.S., so it became necessary to adapt the game with new graphics, characters, levels, and story to make the game palatable to the West. The resultant game is actually a lot of fun, one of which I've been a fan for a long, long time. The story is a ridiculous sort of horror comedy, with a mad scientist creating the hero, Chuck D. Head, in order to battle the big bad, Max D. Cap. The gameplay is excellent, with a lot of varied level designs and obstacles. The gameplay is similar to the Sega Master System game Psycho Fox and the NES game Kid Cool, if you remember any, either of those games. It also had a long-running backup strip in the pages of the UK Sonic the Hedgehog comic. The strip itself was an absurdist comedy satire and dealt with primarily dealt primarily with Chuck's day-to-day life and the insanity therein. He says, I'm a big fan of the game the point that I wrote about it with a blog post a few years ago. You can check it out here, and he gives the link, and I'll see if I can put that in the show notes. Yeah, I'm pretty certain I can do that. Uh, if you want to head over to the website, justmoreoftheguys.libson.com, when this episode goes up, there'll be a post there, and I'll make sure to put the link in the show notes. He goes on to say, I still have my Sega Genesis, and Decapitac is one of the few games which rates being on the shelf near it, as opposed to being boxed up in storage. Great game, all told. You mentioning it, it really made me smile. Thanks, dude, and keep up the work. I dig hearing about those Green Lantern adventures, which are all new to me. Luke Giaconetti. Thanks again, Luke. Yeah, I wasn't really certain about the origin of the Decap Attack game. I really had no idea that it was much more than just basically a shot at Sega trying to distance itself from the sort of side-scrollers that the NES was doing. And actually, I went out and found a site online, I think a retro gaming site, I don't actually know the uh, website address, but they had a copy of Decaptac that you could play online for free, and I played a couple of levels of it, and Luke is right, it is really a fun game with some really inventive levels, it's your typical side-scroller from the 16-bit era, but it's a fun game, so if you have a Sega Genesis and had this game, 
get it out and play it, or go check it out online. It's pretty easy to find. And the last letter this time out is from Mr. Charlie Niemeyer, fellow Oklahoman, who was kind enough to say that he had copies of the Elongated Man miniseries that I mentioned last issue in his possession, and that he was going to send them to me. So, he also sent me a letter saying... First of all, the fact that you were up on five at 5.22 on a Saturday morning sucks. Yeah, well, I'd just gotten home from work and found out that he was going to send me that uh, Elongated Man Marini series, so I thought I needed to respond to him right then and there. Uh, he continues on, Secondly, it's too bad that I didn't know about this earlier, as he's been in Oklahoma City with a few friends since last night and was spending the day in Edmond today. Oh well. As for the issues, you can keep them. Charlie, you are totally and wholly awesome. He said, consider them a housewarming present. I'll get them in the mail on Monday, which should be able to get them to you in plenty of time. He says, also, thanks for your kind words about the show. I'm really excited about the new direction and have a few things planned out for the rest of the year. And David is enjoying, enjoying the Superboy segment as he's a big Superboy fan and it keeps him on the show even though he isn't reviewing with me all the time. And thanks for responding to the question which, if you didn't know, Charlie had asked a question on Superman in the Bronze Age of what your favorite origin of Superman was, and I had to respond to him that my favorite origin was the 1978 Christopher Reeve movie. But back to his letter. I'm hoping to do a new question every episode to get some more listener interaction. Unfortunately, you're, the only, you're only the second person to respond by email. Sigh. Well, hopefully next time around you'll get more people. You know, uh... I wouldn't be disappointed about people not emailing in. We're all doing very niche podcasts, and the fact that we even have, oh, a limited number of people communicating with us, at least to me, is totally and wholly amazing. And besides, I don't want to have to deal with Kevin Smith or Adam Carolla type of BS. Continuing on, he says, Anyway, thanks again, and I'm still enjoying your show as well. They're really getting me interested in all these pre-Kyle issues. I don't have much of an opinion on the whole Alan being gay issue myself, though. With the not-a-reboot, they'll probably just do something like they did after Crisis on Infinite Earths and just come up with a new origin for Jade and Obsidian so that they can still fit it in with the Green Lantern stuff. My guess? Obsidian has the metagene, and Jade has somehow been infected with Green Lantern energy somehow. I don't know. Perhaps a piece of power battery? I don't know. At this point, I'm not sure that we won't find out that the Alan Scott of Earth-1 is still straight and was Green Lantern during Vietnam or something, but was really good at staying hidden or something. Part of the fun of an alternate Earth-1, I guess. Well, that was a long way of saying talk to you later, so I'll stop now. Stay cool, Charlie. Yes, if you know Oklahoma Summer, it's going to be pretty problematic being cool for the next couple of months, so... Thank you, Charlie. I appreciate it. And if you get a chance, definitely go out and check out Superman the Bronze Age. And if you want to see even more of Charlie, well, more of Charlie's work, you can head over to www.clockworkcomics.co.uk and check out the comic strip Slipstream. This is a comic strip written by Jeffrey Taylor of From Crisis to Crisis, drawn by Billy Hogan of the Superman Fan Podcast, and now colored by... Charlie Niemeyer. So, supposedly episodes are coming out each Wednesday, or not episodes, but pages are coming out each Wednesday, so go give them a look and support some of the Superman fans who also are doing a great job with online comics.
But again, thank you everyone for writing in, and I'll give you information about writing in at the end of the show if you'd like to do that. But for now, let's go ahead and get on with the review of Green Lantern number 22. Green Lantern number 22 was cover dated March 1992. The cover price was $1.25 Canada and 60 pence UK. The title this time around was The Contest. Writer, as always, was Gerard Jones. Penciler and coverer, Pat Broderick. Inker, Romeo Tankall. Letterer, Albert Guzman. Colorist, Anthony Tolan. And editor, Kevin Dooley. Traveling through space, Brick, Quarry, and A'a are in hot pursuit of a Teban battle to how. Just go with me. It's some sort of spaceship that can slip into subspace. I don't know. The mineral lanterns finally get a fix on the ship as it materializes in the opening sequence of Star Wars Episode Three. Aa wants to try and discover what the battle is about, while Quarry and Brick say that their mission was to track the craft and search for signs of Star Sapphire, which they do. Meanwhile, Count Dooku is standing on the bridge of the robot command ship and oh, wait, no. Some alien guy in a blue gladiator helmet, metal assless chaps, don't worry, the important parts are covered by a long red loincloth, barks out commands until he is told that he has a visitor. Leaving the command deck, Chieftain Creon retires to his ready room to be met by Flicker. Instead of the two engaging in the obvious lovemaking that one would imagine would occur between these two characters, Creon starts monologuing about war and its hardships and how Flicker screwed him by giving them Star Sapphire as a warrior for their cause. But Flicker says that he can right that wrong by delivering Green Lantern Hal Jordan, Star Sapphire's former lover, to Creon to help make amends for the Zamoronian snafu. At the same time, Hal is flying back from Earth, where he was offered the prospect of leading the new Justice League and meets up with a stony trio, telling the wannabe lanterns that Star Sapphire was sold to the Tebans to fight on their behalf. Hal had the trio track the ship to this location, where she was supposed to be. But with a battle raging on, Aa suggests that the lanterns try and prevent some of the bloodshed. How Flat refuses and says his only job is to find Star Sapphire. So as Brick and Aa head off to search for her, Hori enthusiastically reaffirms his faith in Hal and his plans, leaving Hal determinably pleased. Back at the offices of the Headhunters, the boss chews out Flicker for bringing him into a war zone. Flicker reassures him that this is the one place where he will be able to capture Hal Jordan after he cleverly allowed him to escape the last issue. Wait, he just blew him out of the airlock. Furious that Flicker would try such a reckless scheme, Flicker responds by wrapping his whip around the boss's head and slicing it off, saying that there are others who will support his reckless scheme. Meanwhile, Hal has had no luck searching for the energy signature of Star Sapphire. Wondering why Hal is so single-minded in his mission, Hal relates his life with Carol Ferris and Star Sapphire to Brick. Playing the hurt psycho wannabe girlfriend, Brick mentions that Hal still loves Carol, but maybe his love should be focused on someone nearer to him. Someone with huge tracts of land. Somewhat figuratively. Instinctively hearing the creepy music from Kill Bill playing, Hal tries to comfort Brick, saying that she might be misinterpreting his praise as something more. Brick retorts, saying when Hal did for her, taking her from a planet where people were essentially living boulders, was more than anyone has ever done, and she's concerned that after this mission, Hal will leave her. 
Al tries to comfort her, saying that this is what he needs. He needs to get his old life back. Hopefully his old life then includes Carol. Thankfully, Corey breaks up the awkwardness, telling Hal that he knows where Star Sapphire is. She's being held in a crystal shell in a command ship at the center of the battle fleet. But before the Rock Lantern can finish his statement, Hal is off to attack the command ship. Saying that his plan is going perfectly, Flicker thanks Creon for letting his men get captured by Corey in order to provoke Hal. And without fail, the Green Lantern smashes through a window of the command ship, screaming, Where is she? But as the quartet of lanterns break into the area where Star Sapphire's energy signature was coming from, they see Flicker holding a yellow gun pointed at the head of the CGC in case Star Sapphire. Saying that Flicker has the upper hand, Hal says that he will do what he asks, and Brick and Quarry pledge the same. But Aa instead uses his ring to throw a metal object at Flicker, causing his shot to miss Carol's head. Hal leaps into action after a quick fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved. Flicker decides to fold back into subspace, leaving Hal and the Lanterns to take the glass and tomb Star Sapphire to safety. As some time has passed, and the Green Lanterns are safely away with the cargo, Corey asks Hal to make the decision of who he thinks should be the new Green Lantern recruit. Hal thanks Corey for his loyalty but says his selection is ah-ah. Hal beams Quarry back to his homeworld and tells the two that sometimes a Green Lantern doesn't need to be someone who follows orders, he needs to be someone who questions them. But just as the trio are about to have a group hug, Star Sapphire bursts from her glass coffin and flies at Hal, broadsword raised high, ready to kill. Okay, in this issue, I think we're getting an image of Hal being kind of foolish. He's really focused on getting back with Star Sapphire, so much to the fact that it's evidenced in him ignoring the bigger problems, like the giant war going on all around him. Luckily, I guess, it's a good thing that there's someone there who's willing to question him and make him check his actions. But enough of that, let's go ahead and get on the notes, and we'll start with the cover. And it's a really nice cover. There's a huge space war going in the background, and we've got Hal coming ring-charged, fist out front of him, running right into Star Sapphire, who's got her energy going around her, plus her giant shiny broadsword. And it's a really nice cover. Unfortunately, the one thing that I have to say about it is... Broderick seems to fall into the same Rob Liefeld not being able to draw feet category, as Hal's left foot looks a bit weird. Actually, it looks a bit phallic, but I really didn't want to go into that. Plus, another thing you've got on the cover, boobs. Boobs aplenty. Yeah, there are two giant, round boobs just sticking right out there on the cover for you to look at. Carol... Knee Star Sapphire has some boobs. I don't know if maybe Broderick may be taking tips from, you know, well, Ed Bennis wasn't around, but maybe, what, Jim Balland? Then on page one, panel two, we get more evidence that uh, Broderick might be having some problems with drawing feet as all the characters of Aa, Quarry, and Brick flying towards the, well, towards the viewers in the panel do not have feet shown. <laughs> 
So maybe there is something to this whole theory that I'm putting forth. Plus, for the first time in a long time, again, the entirety of the comic has no page numbers. Which is kind of disappointing when it's trying to synopsize because I like to use page numbers in there, but so it is. Page 2 is really nice the letterist for the 1960s Fantastic Four to allow DC to use basically their lettering for the title of this issue. Yeah, it looks like it... It looks like the lettering could be basically just peeled right from the pages of any average 1960s version of the Fantastic Four title. Kind of unusual. Page 5, we get introduced to Creon, the leader of the Teban battle fleet. And boy, is he a drama queen. Let me read some of the dialogue of his as he monologues with his fist in the air saying, I kill who I must without ceremony. I spare who I can without sentiment, and I give what I have without question. God, what a pretentious douche. And speaking of pretentious douches, uh, it's nice to see that Hal was able to take a little jaunt back to Earth to help out with the Justice League, while all of his friends follow up on Carol's whereabouts, just so he can have the possibility of fighting some people on Earth, and maybe be captain of the new Justice League Europe. Way to go, Hal. Way to delegate. Then on page 8, panel 3, after Ah says, well, you know, you went to Earth to break up problems on Earth. Why isn't it okay for us to break up problems here? And Hal shows his hypocrisy by telling him to ask the Guardians. But go. Find Star Sapphire. Yeah, Hal's not really thinking right. He's got Star Sapphire in his mind, or probably on other parts of his body. Page 9, panels 6 and 7, we get a pretty brutal scene. Now, it's all done in silhouette and shadows, but it's the scene of Flicker using his whip to lash around the head of the boss we got from last issue, the guy behind the hover desk, and ripping his head off with a crack noise effect, and then an image of his head just flying off and blood splattering all over everywhere. It's it's pretty brutal, even though it's just done in silhouette. Pages 10 and 11, we get a big old info dump about Howl and Carol and what their relationship was like. Her getting captured, well, not really captured, but recruited by the Xamarons and turned into Star Sapphire. And, you know, it's a nice catch-up for people who really don't know what's going on with Hal and this person that they're trying to find. That on page 12, panel 2, it's psycho girlfriend time with Brick going, but maybe you're, you're just wasting your love. Maybe you're attaching it to the wrong person. Maybe you should find someone else. Someone good, even if she isn't pretty in your eyes. Ooh, okay, yeah... Rick is going there, and I don't know if Hal's ready to commit to that sort of stony love that she'd be willing to give him. Page 13, panel 6. It's a really nice image of Hal shooting off after he's been told the lanterns know where Carol is. It's really kind of reminiscent of the old Flash sort of speedster lines, where in a panel they take one image of the Flash running, and then a few inches over they had a another image of the Flash in a different position, and it was all linked together by this sort of red and yellow blur. 
Well, they've got the same thing here going with Hal as he's shooting off to try and find Carol. It's really awesome artwork from Broderick. Then on page 14, panel 2, we get Flicker referring to Aa as a she. Now, this is kind of weird. I don't want to assign gender values to these rock lanterns, but Aa definitely doesn't look feminine in the way that Brick does. I mean, Brick definitely has a female figure. She's very curvy, and she obviously has breasts. But in some in some artwork, Aa seems to have breasts, but usually when viewed from the front, she looks pretty masculine, like a strong male character. So it's kind of odd. I don't know whether they just switched things around or whether Aa was supposed to be a she or what, but it is kind of unusual. Then on page 15, panel 1, Hal breaks the window of the front deck, letting all of the deck crew fly into the vacuum of space, killing them. I'm wondering if this is something that he could actually do, or you know whether they can get away with that at this time period, but he does it, so it happened. Then on page 17, panel 4, as Flicker is demanding that Hal hand over his ring, Aa uh, uh, sort of quietly whispers to her himself that but the power of these of these green lanterns in his hands what about the greater good what about the greater good? neat i didn't know ah uh, was a member of the neighborhood watch association then page 18 panel 2 we get ah uh, uh, taking some action as she uses her ring to wang a giant metal bong into flicker's head yep pretty certain that's what it is. Giant metal bong. Then on page 20, panel 7, you know, I'm sorry, Quarry. You know, you were a nice guy, rock person and all, but I just can't stand people with rainbow paint on their face, and I'm really certain you're just a huge kiss-ass, so back to rock world you go. And finally, on page 22, we get Star Sapphire breaking out of her glass coffin and Ooh boy, not only does she have the stereotypical 80s sort of, or not 80s, 90s sort of armor on, she definitely has gigantic 90s hair. It is all over the place. But that finishes notes. Let's go ahead and check out some of the ads and see what they've got in this issue to try and sell to us comic book fans. And on the front inside cover, they've got Rockin' Rollin' Super Off-Road. And this is the... Well, it's the racing game where you basically chose a truck or a car and raced around a sort of dirt track a la, you know, well, not really Excite Bike, but it was a port of the video game, and it was a pretty good port for the Super Nintendo. They've also got a version for the Game Boy, which, since it wasn't the Game Boy Color, I can probably imagine really wasn't all that great. A few pages in, we get a nice uh, sort of green background a la the cover of issue 18, but instead of having Guy Gardner on it this time, they've got some Estes rocket saying, almost ready to fly. Estes proudly presents, or proudly introduces, the E-2X Precision Rocket Series. So, if you want to send up some frogs and space capsules and watch them explode in the air, this is the way to do it. After that again, we get Get All the Action, score 1992 baseball cards. I'm pretty sure you know what my feelings are on this. Next, we get an ad for the Great Eastern Conventions with their big show in Chicago on February 15th and 16th of 1992. And in person, there was going to be Larry Strohman, 
Mark Bagley, Mark Nelson, Chris, or sorry, Craig Russell, Steve Bissett, and many more. So, then they had a super big one in London on the 29th, Superman's birthday, and March 1st, with Jim Lee, Jim Starlin, Mobius, Tim Vigil, David Quinn, Dale Keown, Dave McKean, Neil Gaiman, Simon Bisley, Brian Boland, Mike McDola, and many more. That would have been fun to go to. I wonder if any of the British listeners out there, like Andrew or Steve, might have gone to that and been their youth and seen some of these people. You never know. Then, in the middle of the comic, we get a two-page version of Meet Fleer's new superhero, The Rocket. And I guess this is... I have no idea who this is, but he plays for the Red Sox. Oh, wait, I guess if I'd read it, I guess it's Roger Clemens, so... There you go. That's how little I know about baseball, friends. Again, there's another hodgepodge page with really nothing new. Well, maybe something new. They've got GI dog tags you can buy, but other than that, same old stuff. Then they've got a page divided in half with the top half devoted to Silver Age fun facts to know and tell, where you can order a series of 10 reprints of significant issues from the Silver Age of comics, available now for $1 each. However, there's really no information of where you should send off for this or who's actually promoting this. It's kind of weird. But underneath that, we get an ad for the Joe Kubert School of Cartoon and Graphic Art Incorporated. So if you want to learn how to draw just like Joe Kubert and like some of Joe Kubert's alumni like Steve Bissett, Rick Veach, Andy Kubert, Adam Kubert, uh, who else here? Ron Wagner, Tim Yates, Bart Sears, or Lee Weeks. Then you can sign up to be a part of this school. And then, of course, because Batman is highly popular, you get a subscription page where you can basically order any of the Bat books. And it's got a really nice image of Batman with his arms held out and his cape flowing in the wind, standing, well, at this time, leaping over a gargoyle, so... There's an interesting image that you've probably never seen before. And that's sarcasm. Then on the last page, you get the Batman's best friend isn't out on the streets tonight. The image of Jim Gordon in the hospital with a respirator and EKG monitor as the bat signal flashes out the window. It's the ad for the American Heart Association that we covered before. Back inside cover, we get another Three Musketeers adventure. Unfortunately, it's the Mountain Climbers and the Three Musketeers bar at the top of the mountain. So sadly, nothing new there. But on the back, we get the Terminator 2 Judgment Day on NES and Game Boy. And that's kind of sad, because right now the Super NES is coming out, and we're still in this transition period where we're getting NES games put out as well. So... You would think that, you know, with the Super NES being out, that they'd release a Super NES version of this. Maybe they did, and maybe we'll see the advertisement for that later on in the series. But that pretty much finishes up the comic. I'd like to mention, of course, like always, if you want to pick these up in trade, you're not going to be able to, because DC hasn't put them out in trade. So go to your local comic book shops and try and pick them up. But that does it for this episode. Be sure to come back next time where we're going to have a rip-roaring time with basically Jon Stewart wanting to kill Star Sapphire for obvious reasons. It's going to be a showdown between the Lanterns and Star Sapphire. 
not the kind of three-way that you want to see on the comic book page. But until then, I hope you guys have a good weekend. Take care, and we'll talk with you later. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright the respected copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not happily fall into the weary trope of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys Podcast. And if you'd like to, go ahead and leave a review on iTunes. I'd love to read it on the air. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you've got enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you can obviously spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening song for today's episode is Reunited by Peaches and Herb, off their album At Their Best. Again, if you'd like to download the song, you can go to iTunes and do that, or better yet, go to the Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.libson.com, click the Amazon banner at the top of the page, and go download the song, album, or purchase the CD there. You'll be helping out Chris and Scott, and making sure that they're going to make their way to Star Wars Celebration this August.